Great. Thank you, guys, and good morning, everybody. Welcome to Hiawatha. My name is Chris. I'm uh, one of the pastors here, and we're glad you guys are with us. So um, I know we have, uh, I think for, actually, well, we've always had this, but I feel like maybe especially the past few months, we had a lot of visitors. So if you're one of them, again, uh, welcome. Glad you guys are, are joining us. Uh, as Peter said, we're in Genesis right now, preaching-wise, so if you'd like to follow along in your own Bibles, you can turn there. It's the first book of the Bible, the first book of the Old Testament, and means beginnings, kind of hence the placement and, and the title. It's, it's theological beginnings. Uh, it's the gospel beforehand. It's historical beginnings of how God uh, created everything, how sin came into the world, and how he began to make promises to specific people that would find their finish line in Christ. And so... That's a crude recap. I know if you're brand new to the Bible, a lot of that might not make sense yet, and that's okay. I'll try to catch up to speed as we go. Uh, but in terms of like a little more expanded, um, you know, recap or summary, uh, those pieces are important to know, that this is, this is the book about theological, creational, and kind of sin beginnings. And so the story of the first human beings and how they rebelled against God and kind of us with them spiritually, we can see our story in them back in chapter 3 with Adam and Eve and some in the first human beings rebelling. After that occurs, God has been, you, you've been seeing this if you've been here, uh, but this happens pretty much right away. He exhibits a type of behavior that you might expect from a God who is good and just. So he's the essence of goodness and the essence of justice. And so because of that, that, that kind of characteristic spills over into the immediate and he judges. Uh, he exiles humankind away from his presence. He um, he actually primarily uh, exiles and judges Satan for kind of inciting human beings to rebel against him. And so in light of that, he actually is patient. He speaks grace. He promises blessing. So his goodness kind of flows over to his patience, his love, uh, right away. And so he promises Christ right away. We call that the Proto-Evangelion. It's this first image of uh, Christ promise-wise and prophecy-wise right away in chapter 3 after rebellion occurs. And then later in the story, uh, Abraham comes up, and so we're uh, still on Abraham. He's going to die today in the story, so we're going to close the book on Abraham. After today, we're going to look at his death and his burial and some other things going on there that are pretty theologically cool. Um, but he, what, what ends up happening after sin and some of these early stories is he makes specific promises to a man named Abraham, who's kind of this main character aside from God, this main character in the book, who is, as we've been saying, kind of uh, emblematic of us, and Christ at the same time. It depends on what story is being recounted or, or um, just written. Uh, so he is a, a sinner saved by grace. He's a man of faith, and so he's a hero in that sense, not because he's a good guy. He's a sinner like us. He's just loved, strangely loved by God, peculiarly loved by God, and covenanted with and so forth, called. So in that, he's a picture of us, and, and he's paradigmatic of the salvation experience of the church later on. This is just beforehand. This all happened around 2100 B.C., uh, roughly. But again, also an image of Christ. And so remember we've been saying that this is a book of genealogies, that Abraham is literally the ancestor of Jesus Christ. Literally. And so this is historical theology. It's theological history. Everyone to see it. And so because of that, he is not just a, an ancestor. He's a resembler of Christ. Uh, like our great-great-great-grandfather or grandmother might somehow resemble us and point to us characteristically or personality-wise, uh, that's true here as well. We're seeing images of Jesus in the work of Abraham and the, the words of Abraham, the intercessory acts of Abraham, the kingly acts of Abraham. Uh, we're seeing that play out here too. So in that sense, Genesis is this book of Christ. It's a prophecy ahead of time. When God makes promises to bless the world and save the world from sin, 
uh, all of those promises find their yes, the New Testament says, in Christ. And so we, we've been connecting those dots all throughout this series, and, and today we're going to do more of that. We're, we're going to see Abraham as a picture of us, as one who dies, and as a picture of Jesus, as one who benefits those uh, who are linked with him familially, that's a word, uh, in his, and, and after his death. So let's read it to begin. Uh, we're in 25, 1 to 18. Today we're going to focus on the first 11 verses, uh, the latter Several are just a genealogy of Ishmael. I'll talk about that summary-wise. We'll just read the, the 11 here for today. So follow along on screen or, or in your Bibles or devices. Verse 1. Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. This is after Sarah's first wife died. She bore him Zimran, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Jokshan fathered Sheba and Dedan. The sons of Dedan were Asherim, Ledushim, and Leumim. The son of Midian were Iphah, Ephr, Hanak, Abida, and Eldah. All these were the children of Keturah. Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac, but to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts. And while he was, with, while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac, eastward to the east country. These are the days of the years of Abraham's life, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar the Hittite, east of Mamre, the field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites. There Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son, and Isaac settled at Be'er Lahairoi. All right, so this is a story uh, about Abraham marrying another woman after his first wife, Sarah, died, having more children, giving them gifts, and a particular special inheritance to Isaac, who was pretty much his firstborn son because it was through Sarah. Uh, Ishmael was uh, technically his firstborn, but it was through a concubine. It was a servant of his wife, and that, I'll talk about why that's important here. We have been talking about that, but I'll recap that here um, in, in just a second. In fact, that's, that's one thing we're reminded of uh, right off the bat is Isaac's superiority over Ishmael. And so if you're new to Genesis or the Bible, uh, try your best to understand this. It's one of the best things I can give you in terms of how to understand kind of allegorically and symbolically what's going on here with all these different types of people. And Abraham has two sons. There's different patterns of twins and different people that kind of associate with Israel, but then they're not, and, and how they're mentioned still. And there's a lot of pairings in the Bible. And, and uh, this goes all the way throughout the Old Testament, and they represent different lines different ways of God covenanting with people. And so it, uh, Isaac then, who was a son uh, of Sarah, Abraham's wife, and Ishmael, who was a son of a concubine, not his wife, Galatians 4 in the New Testament uh, calls them two covenants. So Galatians 4:24 uh, says Sarah, Abraham's wife, and Isaac, their son, and Hagar, uh, the concubine, the servant, and Abraham's son with Hagar, Ishmael, they represent two different covenants, or again, ways of God relating to people. And Paul uses the word allegory a little bit later in that to say this can be interpreted allegorically. doesn't mean this didn't happen historically. It did. These are real people who really live with real names, real cities, real stories, real marriages, real lives, real deaths, real burials, all that. Uh, but this is still allegorical, and uh, spiritually speaking, at least in part. So what he's saying here with this is that Isaac, remember, and we looked at this back in chapter 16, 21. It, it kind of flows into a number of chapters. But 
Isaac represents allegorically the line of Christ, and so that's who Jesus comes from. But then all that's wrapped up with Isaac and how he came into the world is important as well. So he resembles Jesus as a willing sacrifice. Remember back in chapter 22, if you were here for that. But broadly, Isaac represents the line of promise and grace, while Ishmael and others uh, like him represent this rejected line, this line of works and human effort and law and slavery. So if you weren't here for this, this is basically how these two sons come into the world. And, And Paul, who wrote the book of Galatians in the New Testament, is reading this with kind of a Christian lens through a Christianized kind of Jesus-y lens and saying, this is a way to understand the whole Bible. There's, there's, there's a way that Abraham worked in the beginning that was good and bad, and they, and they represent two different ways. So with Ishmael, Abraham said, I'll, I'll work here. I'll bring Ishmael, I'll bring a son into the world so that God can work and God can bring blessing through my son because my wife's too old to have kids. But then on the other side with Isaac, God said, it doesn't matter if your wife's 100 years old or you're 100 years old. I am going to miraculously allow you to conceive. That's the line of promise, where God does everything and man and woman do nothing. And so with Ishmael, it's the line of works. With Isaac, it's the line of God doing everything, line of promise and grace and power. And that represents this New Testament ahead of time that God will eventually bring into the world through his son, Jesus Christ. So if if you don't know how those two men came into the world, it has to do with their births. And they came in in different ways. One was human effort. One was God's effort, just to summarize it that way. And God says that, or God says through Galatians, through Paul, through the pen of Paul, he says that's basically representing two different ways of God working with people, the former being lesser and temporary and placeholding, and the latter being ultimate. God saves us from our sins by grace. God saves us from our sins by promise. God saves us from our sins by working for us, not by us working for him. So that's the way this is theologized about and in the New Testament, and we've been reading that back into Genesis, and it plays into today's themes as well. Jesus is from the line of God doing everything. Just understand that. If that's a little bit over the head and you're new to this, there's a lot of names and moving parts there. It can be confusing, but understand that. Jesus is from the genealogical line of God doing everything and people doing nothing to be saved or to be born or to be brought into this world or to be blessed. God doing everything and people receiving in doing nothing. So the fact here that Abraham sends away Ishmael, sends away the rejected line, sends away his other sons, but gives everything to Isaac, kind of undergirds this preference to Isaac idea, this preference to the, this God-given preference to the idea that it's better when God works versus when humankind works, because more blessing comes when God works. God's better, he's more powerful, he's the essence of good, whereas we're the essence of evil. We have false motives. We're born into sin. We can't climb the ladder to God. And so Abraham's actions by bringing that son into the world are condemned. God says, I'm not going to bring my son, my solution to sin in the world, through Ishmael's line. I want the world to know I'm going to bring my solution through Isaac and how he came into the world so that my son will always be known as the one who came into the world through the line of God promising and delivering through the line of grace, through the line of God working for us, not us working for him. It's a New Testament idea that's certainly embedded in the Old Testament, but finds kind of a fresh start and and ultimate fulfillment in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So with all that said, I say that for a recap, and you see it here, this preference to Isaac idea, but also because it builds into what's happening here theologically and symbolically with Abraham's death and his beneficiaries, 
his, uh, his sons. So let's look at those two things now. We're, we're going to look at uh, a couple of things. Um, the nature of Abraham's death, and we're going to look at the beneficiary's idea, how death benefits biblically, and, and talk about how the gospel is in that as well. So first, the nature of Abraham's death. So in verses 7 and 8, it says, these are the days of the years of Abraham's life, kind of a summary of his life, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. So it's, it's interesting that his life's called good. I mean, he died, but and the Bible's not shy about calling death an enemy, a problem to be overcome. But here, uh, it's almost like it's spun a little bit differently and said, well, if you're going to die, die like this guy, if you can help it. You know, I mean, we can't control that. But, you know, if you can live to be 175, you can have uh, a marriage and a bunch of kids and a lot of land and an inheritance to give and, you know, relative health, we can presume generally speaking, over the course of his life, then you've lived a pretty full life, we would say, you know, and, and maybe a type of funeral that we wouldn't be afraid of going to. It wouldn't be that as, as difficult to do, you know. If you're going to go to one and call one, this is a good kind of funeral, this would be it. You know, someone who had a very, very, very full life and died of natural causes and probably expectedly and, you know, it's, he was just, you know, old or he or she was old. And, and so that, those are the kind of funerals that we would like to go to versus the untimely deaths, right? The the funerals of kids, which I've done a funeral for, uh, for a child, an eight-year-old who died not too long ago. And those are, those are the ones no one wants to go to and no one wants to be a part of. Um, they're not, you know, Christ brings hope amidst that, of course, and he certainly did at this funeral. There's glimpses of light, but there's, there's much more darkness. There's much more hopelessness. There's much more. This is not a full life. This was a life cut short. Um, you know, or a, a bride the day after her wedding dying and going to that funeral. I mean, that'd be great, right? Not really, but that'd be, that'd be a terrible one uh, to go to as, as well. So, but this would be the kind that we'd say, this was a celebration, this was a good thing. And, and so when the Bible says this is a good thing, that he, he was full of years, and it was a good old age, like it actually was good that he had old age, that's, that's important to see. But as we, ask, as we summarize that then and ask the question, you know, what does this mean? Uh, that's, there's a couple of things here that relate. The, the one maybe is the more obvious, that, and that is uh, if you know anything about Abraham at all, and, uh, and, the, and these guys have, uh, some of these individuals in the Old Testament have long narratives to kind of show how terrible they are. And then you read stories like this that, that say full life, good, full of years, 175, blessed with long life. It's supposed to be kind of a, you know, the theological math doesn't line up there. The, just the expectations, like, well, it doesn't make any sense. There's no justice in that. And, and so, the first thing this tells us is this is a blatant sign of grace. Blatant sign of grace. Uh, Abraham did not deserve one of those 175 years, but he was given a lot. He was given many. Uh, like, like you and I, haven't deserved a moment, a breath. We didn't choose to come into this world. Our birth was grace. We didn't work for that, right? And though born into sin, God's been patient with us and allowed uh, us to live in different levels. Some of us are young, some of us are old, some of us are in the middle, and he's given a lot of grace. It's the same with us too. But we can ask that question, why such a long life, right? That should be one of the theological questions we ask. We come across passages like this, and he's not alone in the Bible. This just happens to be today's uh, passage. Why such a long life? Why full of years when he's a sinner? And if you, you've been here for the series, you know that he's not been treating his wife very well at all. He's sold her into prostitution. Uh, he's lied through his teeth. 
He's uh, actually the first time we hear about Abraham in the Bible, he's in the act of worshiping other gods. When God taps him on the shoulder and turns him this way and says, actually, you're mine now. Come with me to a new land and a new life. And he calls him away. Uh, he's been a legalist. We talked about that with pursuing this Ishmael road and saying, God, you're incapable, so I'll make the road of blessing possible by having sex with my wife's servants. And here, now you have a son to work through. He's been a legalist, which is sinful, uh, biblically speaking, and a whole list of other things. Yet, he lived by faith and he lived a long life. And, and what, what this tells us is, that this, among other things, is it must not be by works that we inherit life. It, it must not. Otherwise, this makes no sense. There has to be some other moving parts here. There has to be something else God is up to. Because if it was about works, he would die first. This is by far the worst guy in Genesis so far. And we've seen a lot of bad guys. And I say that in part because we have so much on him. There are other bad dudes, for sure. But this is like the main character, and he's the worst guy. And God is still graciously passing over sin and covenanting with him. It's, he's remained strangely silent about his sin a lot of times and giving him long life. If it's about works, he'll die early and have a life cut short. If it's about something else, like grace, ultimately we see this through Jesus. If it's about God providing another way in or another way out, however you want to see it, uh, from sin and death, um, then it starts to make sense. And so as this drives the story ahead to Christ, you know, we, we see that he resolves that tension. If you're reading the Bible for the first time and have no idea what comes after this, if you're literally 25 chapters into the Bible and you know nothing about Christianity, this would be confusing. This at least would be a tension. At least would be something that needs resolution. If you, if you feel the weight of sin, the weight of death, the weight of punishment, the weight of judgment, the weight of exile, the weight of the problem, the the seriousness that we have an enemy out there who wants our life, how much we go our own way as we marry that to looking at our own hearts and how wicked we really are, how much we've gone our own way and how much we don't desire to worship God, how much we sin, how much we hurt other people, then there's a tension here. Why the full life? It has to be for some other reason besides works. It has to be because of, of grace. And through Christ, he, he makes that clear in the New Testament, where sinners are treated mercifully, unfairly, uh, mercifully, and, um, and justly because someone dies for us. And so with, with all this said, it's, you know, we can still ask the question too, and should, is this indicative of, of all who live by faith, long life, and, and full life? And the answer is absolutely not. Uh, biblically, experientially, we, we can affirm this. And, you know, so, some of God's people have full lives. Others do not. Uh, Jesus makes it clear that, that we as his followers will be persecuted heavily at times. Uh, you know, even now as I preach this, someone in the world right now is being killed for being a Christian. Right now. Uh, according to Voice of the Martyrs and persecutedchurch.org, who keep stats on these things, on average, uh, anywhere from dozens to hundreds a day are killed around the world, uh, simply just for being Christians. And so, uh, there are likely to be dozens in the span of this sermon, you know, that are literally being tortured, killed, um, or lesser persecutions, but still real persecutions, like passed over for promotions, or uh, houses being burned down, or threats. If you add those, it's even a higher number around the world, simply for being a Christian. So life's cut short. But the best example of this is Jesus himself, who, unlike Abraham, uh, died at a young age of 33 not full of years. And he did not die of natural causes, but he was crucified 
uh, to death in a way that he was planning, but you could still say an untimely manner from a worldly perspective. Uh, not full of years and not at a good old age. So, um, so a really stark contrast, and I, and I want to kind of highlight this and juxtapose them a little bit because we do compare Abraham and Jesus a lot because the, the New Testament does. They are in the same genealogical line, and we do need to make these comparisons and contrasts sometimes with the two to kind of get theology, get more about the gospel and what it means um, out of. And so the juxtaposition itself, the two next to each other, they tell us a lot. You know, they, it, it tells us things like Jesus would die a death for the sake of the dead, that he would go ahead and die a type of death that would cover lesser deaths. Or maybe uh, mostly that he would die so that those who deserve worse deaths could instead live forever. Abraham deserved to live less than Jesus, but Jesus lived less than Abraham. Right? To at least affirm that. Jesus was a perfect man who was also God. He deserved the full life, but his life was cut short. Why wasn't it flipped? These are important questions to ask and answer. Biblically speaking, they're tensions that need to be resolved. And in Christ, they're only resolved. And we understand that he died for a purpose. You know, I, th- I mean, think about that. I was thinking about this for the first time. I've read this passage a lot in my life, this book, a lot. But I was just thinking, I'm 38, so I'm in this category. Not all of you are in this category. A lot of you are not in this category yet, but it doesn't matter. It still applies to you. <laughs> but if you've lived more than 33 years on this earth, you can kind of put yourself in the category of Abraham and say, you've lived longer than the Son of God himself, who was perfect, got to on this earth. That's unfair, isn't it? It's grossly unfair. Well, did did we do something to kind of earn that? Were we better than the Son of God? Did we do more? Did we speak more truth? Of course not. That's, That's ridiculous. And so grace abounds in our stories as well. And for those of you that are 25 or 12 or whatever, or a day old, um, you know, up there in the upper room, whatever, no babies up there, but um, grace still prevails, and and the point is still the same. We don't deserve a day. We don't deserve a moment. We don't deserve our first birth in, in the first place. And so the principle is Jesus' life was cut short for you. That's the gospel. Jesus' life was cut short for you, you who get longer lives than him. And even your physical life can be a demonstration of your eternal life. And how that's an even better thing we have to hope for. But Christ's life, if anybody deserved to live longer, it was him. Uh, but it was cut short intentionally so that you, you and I might live. That's the gospel. And that's, the, that's how Abraham's life here, being full and good as it's defined, uh, gives us a glimpse of this. All right, so let's move on. That's the first thing. The, the second thing related, and we'll kind of spin off this actually to talk more about the nature of the gospel, how exactly God saves, and, and some more things about it is to look at this idea of the benefits of Abraham's death because they were benefits. Abraham's death brought benefits to people so that they could say, like his sons could say, uh, life was such and such, and then my father died, and then life in some ways was better because we got all this stuff. You know, and, and we have these kinds of things happen in life too. I, I know I use better loosely because we might wish that our father and mother never died, right? But, and so in that sense, things are worse. But in terms of like a stuff or an inheritance thing, uh, I got something upon a death. Uh, and it's a major theological theme to get. Uh, if, again, if you, with the two sons issue from before and this idea of inheritance, 
kind of together these three things, or actually two things, <laughs> but anyway, two themes. Uh, if you get this, you get, get a lot from Genesis because it comes up again how uh, there's kind of a will-like situation here. Uh, and we don't have a formal mention of a will here, but the spirit of the idea is present. Abraham's at the end of his life. He's getting things in order, dispensing gifts, and giving an inheritance, uh, especially to Isaac, but also his other sons. Which, again, may seem like a passing theme, but this, again, starts in motion here, a very important idea that finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ, which is death brings benefits. If you read the Bible that way, you'll get a lot. It's not the only way to read it, of course. There are many themes that kind of tie it together into this big, fat rope of a story. But it's one of the threads that over and over again we see death bring benefits. And there are beneficiaries of wills and inheritances. And, and actually later in the Old Testament, we see animals start to die for people. God wants Israel to sacrifice animals so that they'll get benefits from that death. God says, if you sacrifice, you're a sinner and you're seeking to draw near to me in worship and there needs to be a shedding of blood, there needs to be a death in between us so that you can fully draw near to me. And that was never fully possible in the Old Testament, but kind of partially in a way that drove the story ahead ultimately to Christ who fulfills this idea. He's, he is the inheritance, the New Testament says. He is the ultimate sacrifice. The blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin, Hebrews 9, I think 22 says, uh, but a human being can. When a human being's dying for a human being, especially on that level of him being a perfect one, that, that substitution can work. That's why God became a human being to die for us. He didn't just snap his fingers. He had to become like those he was advocating for. He had to become like those he was dying for. That the, the idea, we call this the incarnation, where he became a human being. Uh, we celebrate this mostly at Christmas time. We remember it especially then. It's a miracle. It's impossible to fully understand how someone could be fully God and fully man, but it happened, and it had to happen in order for him to die a certain kind of death that would actually benefit us. Us, humans, who are exactly like Jesus, who's exactly human, just like us. And so it's a beautiful thing that he would do that, that he didn't become a rock to save rocks. He didn't become a plant to save plants. He didn't become an animal to save animals. He became a human being to save human beings. And so Jesus fulfills these ideas. He's, um, he is the sacrifice and the inheritance. And in the New Testament, it talks about how the covenant that God makes with us through Jesus, uh, this relationship now we have, this New Testament, is kind of like a will. And so I've been talking about this, but just to get more clear in it, um, Hebrews 9, 15 to 18, this is a New Testament book, if you're unaware, um, comments on this, the nature of the New Testament, the nature of how we're brought to God through Jesus' blood, it's likened analogously to a will. So let's read it and we'll comment on it. It says, Therefore, Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant, mediator between God and sinners. He's the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Since a death has occurred, that redeems them from the sins committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant, that's the Old Testament, was inaugurated without blood. So what this is saying is sin leads to death, but God allows the death of others to kind of cover us. We've talked about that early on. It was through 
animal sacrifice and inheritances. But here it's saying it's Jesus' death alone that truly redeems us from sins because those things were just whispers. They were just foreshadowings and prophecy. Big arrows ahead in history for the New Testament where uh, Christ comes on the scene. And again, he likens it to a will. It's a really it's an interesting metaphor. It's helpful because we deal with wills. Some of you guys maybe have written your own will or you've been a beneficiary yourself as your parents have passed or grandparents or something like that. So you've seen this kind of play out in our level. It's not exactly the same always. It's an analogy because with God it's perfect. With human beings it's imperfect. But he's saying the New Testament is like a will. It's actually a play on words because the same Greek word, diatheke, means will and covenant. So he's talking about the New Testament or New Covenant, but he's using an analogy about a will. It's kind of a play on words. If you know Greek, it's kind of interesting there, but you don't have to. That's not important. So he's saying here, a, a death must occur, like in a will, a death must occur for the benefits of the will to go into effect, for it to be established. So Jesus' death then inaugurated uh, the New Covenant. For where will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. He's liking this exactly towards the gospel story that you and I, if you're a Christian here today, you and I have ascribed to, we've, we adore, we're a Christian because of, is God authored our salvation. He authored the covenant. And not just that, he said, I, have, I myself, because I author it and I authored the will, I have to die for the beneficiaries to get the stuff, the stuff of salvation, the riches of my grace. A death has to occur. There's no way the New Testament would come into the world. There's no way for us to be saved without a death because the covenant and the will idea in the Testament, can we say last will and testament, all those ideas are wrapped up uh, together. Jesus' death set in motion a series of eternal benefits for for those who take refuge underneath it and those who enter into covenant with God through Jesus' blood. So in Genesis' terms, uh, Jesus then is from this kind of line we're seeing in Genesis 25, the, the Abrahamic line of death bringing benefits to the undeserving. This is a whisper in Genesis. It's shouted from the mountaintops in the New Testament. He's from the line genealogically and theologically and otherwise of death bringing benefits to the undeserving, you and I being the beneficiaries if, we're, if we live by faith. And if we receive the gift of Jesus' blood shed for us on that cross 2,000 years ago. And it's a, it's a wonderful metaphor, too, for salvation for a number of other reasons. You know, you may have been thinking about this already. This came up a few weeks ago. But uh, the biggest thing here is inheritances, and we see this today, too, uh, by good fathers and mothers. So this isn't always the case. I know we don't always have the greatest of family stories, but... In a, in a healthy, non-dysfunctional situation when inheritances are dispensed, inheritances are given in love. Right? They're given. They're not worked for. Inheritances are received, not worked for. Right? And so for the Bible to say, your salvation is like an inheritance, is to say this. It's given to you. Does anybody ever work for an inheritance? It's not how it works. It's given. We, we get, if you get an inheritance, you get what someone else worked their entire life for. It's the same with salvation. When you're saved, you get what God worked for on your behalf. He's working for your recreation. He's working for your new birth. 
He's working for the forgiveness of your sins, and he worked on the cross ultimately when he died for you. That's the gospel that so many of you believe in, and some of you don't yet, but we invite you to that table. We invite you to walk through that door as a sinner, not working for an inheritance. I mean, no one, maybe you've seen this play out in a movie but, or something, or even in your own life. No one likes the guy or the gal who tries to butter up the dad at the end of his life to get more written in the will for him or her. No one likes that guy, right? If you see that play out in your life or in a movie, I've never been there, but I'm going to kind of go and just be there at the end of his life and kind of butter him up, so hopefully I'll get the stuff, you know? No one likes that guy. And God doesn't either. Because the equivalence of that is to say at the end of our life, or whatever, at least in our life, kind of before the cross, we're seeking to butter up God with our moral effort, with our good works, with our performance. God doesn't accept those types of sons and daughters. That's a, that's a works-based, Ishmael kind of way of going about spirituality. Not an Isaac way, not a grace way. Not a receiving everything from God kind of way. It's the wrong way. So what this tells us then, and it, just the word itself says, don't seek to flatter God with our works, but thank him for his hard work done for us through his son. That fits way better with the inheritance idea, way better analogously and theologically and with what the rest of the Bible has to say about the New Testament than the other way around. So think about it this way. Salvation is an inheritance, not a paycheck. The Bible talks all over the place about salvation being an inheritance given to you by grace, but never about it being a paycheck as though you deserve it. In fact, when it uses the word wages, it says the wages of sin is death. So if we're up for working before God, what we get, what we earn with our sinfulness is eternal death. But, but praise God, the gospel counters it, and it says the solution then is not more work or a better kind of work. The solution is God's work. The solution is Jesus. The solution is a gift. It's an inheritance given, not work, not work earned. Romans 4, 4 to 8 talks about this. It, it contrasts the ideas. It says, this is the New Testament letter. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. So just stop right there, right? Obviously, we go to work, we get a paycheck. It's not a gift from our employer where we say, well, oh, thank you, this is so generous of you. You know, we say, oh, I worked hard for that. That's my wage. But that's not the gospel. He's to contrast it. He says, and to the one who does not work, in verse 5, who does not work but believes... So work and belief are contrasted. Does not work but believes in Jesus who justifies the ungodly. His faith is counted as righteousness and perfection and vindication before a holy God. Just as, verse 6, just as David in the Old Testament in Psalm 34 also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom, I think it's Psalm 34, might be 32, I forget. One of those. Just as David also speaks the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness, look at this, Apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. And how do we get that blessing? Not by work. That's the good news. Like we might hear that and say, oh, I want that kind of blessing. And, but we might be burdened by thinking, how can I get it? Have I done enough? Will I ever do enough? I kind of got it now, but will I lose it? 
God might like me now, but will he, will he not like me tomorrow after I commit a thousand sins in my sleep? The good news is it's by faith, by trust, by belief. It's, it's actually aside from works. These things are not blended. These things are held in contrast. One who works, his wages are not a gift, but the one who believes and does not work, his faith is counted as righteousness. So righteousness before God comes by trust in his solution. As sinners, by believing that Jesus died for us and believing that he rose from the dead to usher in a new era and to give us new life ourselves, faith in that is, is what saves. And actually, uh, Galatians 3.18 to also, same author, different book. Paul says here that for the inherit, if the inheritance or salvation comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. If salvation comes by law or by asking you to be better people, to try harder, to keep the law or else, then it's no longer by God saying, I promise to do it on my own. Again, this is Isaac and Ishmael stuff, right? If, like we talked about before. If it's by Ishmael, if it's by the law, if it's by human effort, it's no longer by the promise. You can't blend them. They are, they are distinct ways of, of viewing how God moves towards sinners. Is it because we're good or is it because he's good and he loves bad people? Those are, those are different. You can't, it's oil and water. According to the Bible, you can't put them together. It's not about God kind of saving you than being a good person to keep his salvation on top of you, which is the way a lot of, we all, I live that way. We all live that way. Just to level the playing field here. Um, not all preach this. We don't preach this, but this is a default way we kind of enter into spirituality a lot of times. Jesus plus works. The promise plus moral effort equals salvation. That's, that's bad theological math. Terrible doesn't equate, doesn't work out. All our numbers get messed up. It's faith alone, grace alone, God alone, Jesus alone, his blood alone. A death had to occur. So it can't be about a moral effort because that if it was, it wouldn't, ha wouldn't say that death has to occur. It would say maybe it has to occur for really bad people. But for those of you who are good, it doesn't have to occur. That's what it would say. But instead it says, a death, Jesus' death had to occur for the benefits of salvation to be dispensed to the beneficiaries of his family. So it's by faith we're made righteous. And, you know, this, in Genesis 25, 11, it says, after the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son. And it's the same idea. It's where the gospel is, 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 in the New Testament, we say after the death of Jesus, not, bef not before, because there is no blessing apart from his death. There's no way to be blessed or saved. There's no way to have the inheritance, the, the riches of God's goodness and grace. There's no hope to see him face to face someday and to walk on a new perfected earth with perfect bodies. There's no more death or crying or pain or shame. No hope without that death. A death has to occur. Justice has to be done our sin has to be atoned for. It's either going to be put on our shoulders in the end or on Jesus's. And the invitation is to you guys and to me constantly through the word is, who is it going to be? Who is bearing your sin? 
Is, is it you or is it Jesus Christ, the lover of your soul? God who became like you to bear it all, to take it all on himself, to be humiliated and cursed. The Bible says, cursed are those who hang on a tree. Cursed in your place so that you can become blessed. It's all about him. Other religions say it's about you. Try harder. Christianity says, stop trying for crying out loud. Stop trying. Stop the charade. And receive the man who died for you on a cross and believe for the first time. Some of you guys for the first time today or the second or third or the billionth. Uh, believe. As Romans 4 says, stop working and just believe in him who justifies the ungodly. Cast yourself upon the man on the cross and bathe in the crimson river, as we sang earlier, that flows from its base and be washed by his blood, not yours. You're not cutting yourself, living ascetically, trying to appease. He was cut and his life was cut short for sinners. And he did so willingly because he actually does love us. It doesn't make sense if you take love out of the equation. God paid the ultimate price. And so as we think about this, I, you know, to wrap this up, I, you know, we need to know this so that one will be saved. Um, because if we don't take the road of Christ, all of us are hellbound, And we have no hope of seeing God face to face. Because we're not saved by, a, by, a, by ourselves. We need someone to wash us. So we need to know that and to trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. But we also need to relatedly see God the right way. Like in the day-to-day I'm talking about. So Speaking of those of you who are Christians, especially here, but this applies if you're not, too. You can think about God this way. But you know, when we think about God more as a, as a loving father than a boss, I mean, and as an inheritance giver, like when you sin, God is like a father wanting to give you an inheritance. That's really what he's like. That's what your covenant like is with God right now, is basically the thing between you is not the, the stones of the Ten Commandments kind of etched in the old in the Old Testament saying, do this or else. What stands in between you is an image of God at a table with bread and wine saying, I love you, and here's what you're going to get when I go. Just be a good steward of it. Receive it. Um, I don't need it. I, I want you to have it, you know? And it's with a smile on his face saying, I love you. He's <laughs> like, what? We've got to have a category for this. When we're sinning, that's what he's like. Not on your best day, on your worst day you've ever had. He's like a father wanting to give you gifts and just giggling at Christmas time watching you open them. Writing out a will saying, I, want, I love my kids so much, I want them to be cared for and protected. See, he's a parent, not a boss, not a cordial boss. You're not his servant. He's your servant. Jesus says, I didn't come to be served, I came to serve. He's friend of sinners. He's a perfect bridegroom to a messy bride, to use another biblical analogy. These are the things in between us. It's in the, the cross, ultimately. This is where all these things kind of find their... So when we sin, you know, if we forget his grace, he's like a father patiently, when we, when we loving us. When we doubt and misunderstand, that's what he's like. When we're in trouble, he's willing to fight our battles like a strong father. When you don't love him, he loves you in his son. Because, remember, this is not about reciprocation. God's not saying, 
if you love me back, then we're good. He's saying, as you're in the act of not loving me, this is my posture towards you. I'm loving you. And, and so we need to humbly receive this and, and lay down our crowns and our resumes. And like the Apostle Paul says in Philippians 3, all the good things I've ever done, I consider trash. Stinky, rotten chicken bones from two nights ago in the garbage can. My good works. Before Christ, that's what my good works are. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ, that I may be known by him, that I may share in his sufferings, that I may know him in his resurrection. That, that, that's the Christian mindset is we actually, not that we're anti-good works, but we, it, we see Jesus as this kind of third way between morality and immorality. It's not moving towards morality, it's moving towards Jesus, away from even our moral efforts that were done apart from God, which are sin. Because like Abraham holding up Ishmael saying, look what I've done, God. We say with our moral effort, look what I've done, and we are rejected with the line of Ishmael. The only way to please God, Hebrews eleven six, I think says, is to live by faith. The only way to please God is to accept his inheritance by grace. And that's good news. It's humbling because it brings us to the end of ourselves. And it says over and over again, we can't do it. And so that's okay. If you feel like that's a really hard thing to accept because I'm driven, I'm type A, I think I can do it, I'm very intelligent, I've got a lot of stuff, I've succeeded in life, my kids are perfectly obedient, uh-huh, you know, whatever. But if, if that's, that's okay, you're understanding. If you feel that burn, you're understanding it. You're, you know, but hopefully you feel the joy and the, the relief at the same time um, with God's help. Yeah, this is humbling, but the, the happiest thing ever, that God does everything for sinners because he loves them so much. So uh, Matthew 7, 11, Jesus' word says, if you then, who are evil, <laughs> it's classic, if you then, who are evil, uh, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father, there's the idea of father gives the inheritance again, your father God who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him. Not a billion dollars or Ferraris or a good hamburger, which is, I mean, yeah, God, God is the giver of all good things, but the point is here, ask him, ask him. You know, don't, don't leave here, this last, last couple of songs we sing, without asking him afresh to save you from your sins. You know, and I, just for Christians here in the room for a second, I just ask you guys, and I need this, when's the last time you audibly heard yourself ask God to save you from your sins? Maybe it was this morning, but I mean, this is a pattern. This is something we, we don't just graduate from. Like we, not that we revert, we regress. I mean, God's blessing is eternal when we receive it, but Ask him for grace. Ask him for the riches of his eternal inheritance, and he gladly gives it at, because of Christ. Ask him for forgiveness. Ask him for the blessing of salvation and closeness to him, and you instantly have it because it's so not about you. If it was about you, you couldn't say that. We, we couldn't say it's, we don't know if we have it right away. We'll find out later when we get judged based on our works and the scales are tipped. This is kind of a classic Roman Catholic doctrine. 
which is unbiblical. So we, this is how we can know we're saved because we believe God has done all the work, the heavy lifting. He's bore the brunt. He died on the cross for sinners, and we rejoice, and we are people of the cross. We are people of the empty tomb. We are people of the Christ. Christians, literally Christians, because we actually believe that. We're not moralists, and the world will accuse us of being uh, anti-law, of living too simply, of not being spiritual enough, but our simple spirituality is enough because Christ is everything for us. And, um, and he loves that. I mean, God gets glory in that. When people again, like they were in the beginning, people again look at God and say, you're, you're sufficient. That's the way things were before sin came into the world. And that's how Christ, that's the type of mindset Christ helps restore. He gets back to that place of Jesus is everything. He's totally enough, totally enough. And so is his grace. Let's pray. God, thank you for uh, Genesis 25 and all that it means to us today. And uh, the, I guess just the core of it being salvation is an inheritance, which means it's given, which means we don't work for it. Uh, Abraham imaged this uh, to his sons, and Abraham as a Christ figure images this on behalf of the Christ ahead of time, and by design... Uh, to show us that death brings benefits, uh, biblically speaking and theologically. And so, Christ, thank you for walking that road. You didn't just come into the world to be a kind of a, a wise sage and a speaker of some pretty insightful things. You weren't a life coach. You came to be a savior, uh, to be a man of sorrows, to be rejected, ultimately unto death on a cross by your design so that that new covenant could go into effect and we could have the forgiveness of sins, the ultimate benefit of the God-man dying in the place of sinners he loves. And so that help us to believe in that and to cast ourselves upon that gospel afresh through the avenue, uh, the kind of windy road of Genesis 25, 1 to 11, uh, as all scriptures declare your glory. All the scriptures are about Jesus and him crucified and raised. Everything's about your grace ultimately. Uh, This passage is no exception, so help us to bathe and bask in this goodness and freedom today as we sing and read. Amen.